Wow, isn't that beautiful? You have a wonderful, wonderful, gifted group of people who lead you in worship each Sunday. I would encourage you, if you have an opportunity, to send them a note of encouragement and let them know how God's used them in your life. It would mean a lot to them. You know, you never quite know when you work in a theological, an institution of theological education or in higher education, you never quite know how you're going to be perceived when you come down out of the putrefied air, I mean the rarefied air of academia. (laughs) And uh, so in academia, of course, we're all bent on titles. Everybody has a title, doctor this and professor that. But I thought you might be interested to know how my my family views my title. I have a, a doctorate, and so I'm known as Dr. Young around the campus. One day, we'd just come back from Europe in 1995, and at that point, our youngest child was in kindergarten. And so the kindergarten teacher was inviting the parents of various children in the class to come and talk about what they did. And so I remember going into the kindergarten classroom and sitting down on those little chairs in the front row, you know, the ones that are really easy to get into and really hard to get up out of, right? So I'm sitting there and the teacher is introducing what they're going to do. And she says, today, boys and girls, we have Dr. Mark Young. And so she's keeping on talking and I hear my son, who's right behind me, my youngest son, right behind me and his little friend, his little friend leans over and he says, wow, your dad's a doctor. My son says, yeah, I thought I could hear a little pride in his voice. And then this little friend says, well, when I get sick, I'll come over to your house. And my son kind of paused and he says, He's not that kind of doctor. And the little boy says, well, what kind of doctor is he? Now, you have to realize, I have fed this child and I have housed this child (laughs) for five years. And he turns to his little friend and says, I don't know, some kind of a useless doctor. (laughs) Thanks a lot. They must have been listening to my dad who has told me for years that I'm educated way beyond my intelligence. <laughs> we're going to talk about four things. We mentioned them this morning, if you were with us. We're going to talk about who we are, and we are the people of God. We're going to look at that in depth today, this evening, what that means. We're going to talk about why we are who we are. And we're going to say that we are the people of God's mission. And so we're going to say mission frames why, or is the answer to the question, why God has made us as his people. And then we're going to ask the question, or we're going to answer the the question, where we are as the people of God. We're going to talk about this world that God loves, that is fallen, and that has turned its back on God. And why we as the people of God remain a part of this world. And then this morning we talked about when we are the people of God. And we said we are the people of God between the comings of the Savior, the first coming of the Savior, and then the second coming of the Savior. And then in that period of time, in the plan of God, in all of human history, as God oversees it, we are living in that time when being empowered by the Holy Spirit we have been uniquely gifted and uniquely empowered to testify to the risen Christ until he comes again. 
So let's look at those first three issues, who we are, why we are who we are, and where we are who we are. And I want to do it on the basis of 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. For some reason, you, maybe this is the, one of the first times you've ever looked at a Bible. It's on page 1015 in the Bible that you can find there in the back of the seat in front of you. 1 Peter, as you know, written by the Apostle Peter, the, one of the leaders of the band of disciples that follow Jesus. I think what is most important at this point in understanding Peter and his context is this, this group of people were living probably, depending on when we date the book, probably during the time that Nero was the emperor in Rome. If you know anything about that period of time, you would know that Nero was as corrupt as you could possibly be, a violent and brutal man, paranoid to the nth degree, who had a tendency to wipe out or destroy anyone that he perceived to be his enemy. And of course, during this period of time, the Roman government and the leadership assumed that Christians, because they claimed their primary allegiance was to Jesus, were somehow subversive in the kingdom. And so there was a lot of opposition to Christians during this period of time when Peter is writing. And as you would know, if you are a group of the confessors of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, the people of God, and the broader community and society around you perceives you to be somehow against them or somehow undermining their society, then you are going to have to be clear and know who you are. If you don't define yourself I guarantee you, someone else will define you. And so we must know, as the people of God, and these believers had to know who they are. So let's look at it together. Verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He writes it this way. But you, meaning those who are believers, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the beginning of verse 9, Peter uses four descriptors of the people of God. He says to them, you are a chosen race or a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of God's own possession. And some would translate that a treasured possession. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you would know that these descriptions of the people of God come directly out of the book of Exodus. So put your finger in your Bible in 1 Peter chapter 2 and turn back with me to Exodus chapter 19. You put this all together. The people of God are called, are brought into existence for the same purpose in both the Old and the New Testament. In fact, you can argue that the people of God forms a continuous theme throughout the Bible from Acts chapter 12 all the way up through the end of the book of Revelation. Now in Exodus chapter 19, 
we find that these people, the sons of Abraham, at a critical moment in their history. You remember the story, how God has brought them out of Egypt. He's redeemed them from Egypt. He's brought them into the desert. And in Exodus 19, we find them at the moment in their history when they are about to receive the charter of their nationhood. It's as if they are going to receive their constitution of what it will mean for them to live as the people of God. That's what you and I know as the law, as the Torah. Because in Exodus chapter 20, they're going to receive, through Moses, the Ten Commandments. So at this critical juncture in their history, after they've been brought out of Egypt, redeemed from Egypt by their God, brought into the desert, and you remember the story how God's going to provide for them and how they grumble against him. At this critical moment, God says to them this in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse, we'll read it from verse one. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, this you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples because the whole earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now go back to where you have your finger in 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at the phrasing that Peter uses. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The language that Peter uses in the text directly quotes the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of Exodus chapter 19. So when he says to them, you are a chosen people, what he indicates is that we as the people of God are the people of God at God's initiative. That we are the people of God because God has acted on our behalf. In Exodus chapter 19, it's that God acted on behalf of his people and redeemed them out of Egypt. For you and for me, it's because God acted on behalf of his people and redeemed us through the blood of the lamb, brought us out of sin and darkness and death and into the light. We are God's people at God's initiative. And therefore, we are God's people at God's command as well. We are a chosen people. God has acted on our behalf and made us his people. And then he says that we are a royal priesthood. Some translations would say a kingdom of priests to mirror what's in Exodus chapter 19. This one gets a little trickier and sometimes some of our history and our theology can cloud a little bit the meaning of the text. Kingdom of priests describes us as a special mediator between God and others. That's what a priest does. A priest is someone 
who stands between or mediates between God and the worshiper. The priest receives from God that which is required and mediates that to the worshiper. And then the priest receives the worship of the worshiper, the offerings of the worshiper, and mediates that back to God. And so when Peter describes us as a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood, what he is saying is that we as the people of God mediate to all of those around us what it is that God has required, demonstrating to them who God is. And when they in turn worship the one true God, we mediate their worship as the community of believers back to God. Now when you think about it, that means that you and I, the people of God, mediate for the world around us the character and the demands of the one true God. And as they come to faith in Christ and become a part of our community, we're the means whereby their worship is mediated back to God. As a kingdom of priests, we are critical in being that point of contact between the unbelieving world and the one true God whom they are called to worship as well. It's a marvelous, marvelous privilege. Sometimes we get tangled up with this idea that what Peter's talking about is the priesthood of the believers. The priesthood of the believers is a doctrine that came out of the Reformation that indicated that all believers have access to God, and certainly that's a truth. But in this particular passage, the idea of the priest is the one who mediates between God and the worshiper. Think about it. Israel mediated between God and the nations. If the nations in the Old Testament were to worship the one true God, they were to find him through his people Israel. And if they were to worship the one true God, they were to worship through the temple and through the law that God established and given to his people. So we are in between. We mediate between God and the world. Not only that, he goes on and he says that we are a holy nation. The idea of holiness, of course, means that which is set apart unto God and that which mirrors or reflects the character of God. I love what one commentator describes. He says that we are a showcase people. You and I are created as the people of God to demonstrate to the nations who God is and what he is like. I think I told you that we lived in Vienna, Austria, for a number of years when we were working in the uh, Soviet bloc. And in Vienna, of course, you have these marvelous craftsmen, oftentimes shops in the city filled with craftsmen four, five, six generations in duration. Sometimes they would be woodworkers. Sometimes they would make Viennese porcelain, which is a beautiful craft. Sometimes glass workers. Sometimes jewelry makers, silversmiths. And so you'd walk down these narrow cobblestone streets of Vienna and you'd see these little shops along the way. And You know what was always interesting is that the craftsmen always put their best work in the window, didn't they? Because they wanted to showcase just how beautiful their handiwork is. You and I are the people that God has placed to showcase his character. We are to live in such a way 
that people can know the very character of our God by observing our lives as the people of God together. We are a showcase people. And then finally, he goes on to say, not only are we a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but we are a people of his own possession. In the Exodus text, text, it talks about a treasured possession. This language comes out of the idea of a king having a, a treasury full of riches. You can imagine, for example, the description of Solomon's riches in 1 Kings. A king would have the most beautiful horses. A king would have the most beautiful gold. A king would have the most beautiful wives. But this idea is that in all of the treasury of the king, everything that the king possesses, there is something that he treasures above everything else that he possesses. Something that is so magnificent, so beautiful, that has captured his heart in a way that nothing else has captured his heart. That's who you and I are. We, as the people of God, are God's treasured possession. The objects of his special love poured out on us in Christ. Wow. We are a people because God has taken the initiative to make us a people. We, we are a people who have the privilege to live different kinds of lives that showcase the very character of our God. We're a people who've been given the privilege of mediating the very God we worship to the nations around us. And out of all the nations, all of whom belong to God, we are God's treasured possession because of his love poured out on us in Christ. What a privilege to be the people of God. What a privilege to be those who are created in this way unlike any other and given the special mission that he has given us. Now the very next phrase in the text is critical. Peter has given us a description of who we are. The very next word in the text translated here in this version with the word that is a small connection in Greek that always defines a sense of purpose. So I don't know if you're okay writing in your Bible, but if, if you can get past remembering your mother slapping you on the back of your hand for writing in your books, I would recommend that you write in the margin of your Bible this little phrase, so that, so that. We are all of these things that God has created for one purpose so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have one purpose, according to this text, that is to make known, to announce, to communicate, to shout from the rooftops, to demonstrate in everything that we do and everything that we are, the excellencies of the God who has created us. That's why we are who we are. I don't know about you, but I feel like we have a real serious issue as the people of God losing sight of our mission, 
losing sight of our purpose. Now, if we were on an airliner right now, the captain would come on and say, you probably ought to buckle your seatbelt because we're expecting turbulence. Turbulence. What is our mission? Why are we who we are? Is it our mission to build a Christian nation? Is it our mission to protect religious liberty? Is it our mission to make sure the right person gets elected? Is that our mission? No, not at all. At best, it's a distraction. Our mission in everything that we do is to announce and set forth and demonstrate and make plain and make sure that all of those around us know how excellent and wonderful and virtuous is our God, period. That's our mission. That's why we are who we are. And no matter how we engage ourselves in the society around us, no matter how we engage in the political process, no matter how we engage in the business world, no matter how we engage in academia, no matter how we engage in any segment of society, we have one mission. And this is it. If the world around us thinks that we're concerned about anything other than Jesus, then we're not engaged in our mission. Because that's who we are as his people. I love to fly fish. It's a Colorado vice. Amen. <laughs> I've never had an amen on a vice. <clears throat> I'm praying for you, brother. And so... <laughs> I love fly fishing. I love it because it's technical and you have to concentrate. So if somebody says to me, oh, just take some time off and go sit under a tree and relax, that will never work. There are 40,000 things on my mind. I need something that allows me to think about something else and not think about everything that's happening at the seminary. So I fly fish. Now, if you fly fish and you know that Fly fishermen have a bad habit of typically standing where other people fish. Meaning, fly fishermen very rarely stand on the bank. This was a crazy idea to me. When I grew up fishing for catfish in Mud River in Hurricane, West Virginia, we sat on the bank and we threw our bait into the water. Fly fishermen walk out into the water and fish back to the bank where they find that perfect run, that perfect riffle just where you know those, those rainbows and browns are holding. Now, when you wade out into the river, you immediately begin to feel the press of the water against your legs. I have to tell you that in Colorado, most of our rivers are fed by snowmelt in the very high mountains, which means that the water is really cold. I know <laughs> just how cold that water is. And it's especially cold when it gets inside your waders. <laughs> so my wife bought me a wading staff. It's a little telescoping staff that I take with me when I wade out into that water. So I'm wading out into the water. It's pressing against my legs. 
The rocks in the river sometimes will have a little moss on them. And sometimes when you step on a rock, it'll shift. You got the pressure of that water pressing against you. And you know what keeps me on my feet, keeps me being what I'm called to do in that river, which is to fish and not swim? (laughs) It's my staff. It's that waiting staff. It gives me that sense of security. It lets me know that no matter what's pressing against me, no matter how my environment has changed, there's one thing that's going to keep me secure on my feet as a fisherman and not a swimmer. That waiting staff is our mission, my dear friends. That's the announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we think the world has shifted under our feet, when we feel like we're off balance because of the culture that's changing around us, we need to grab hold of that staff and stay right up on our feet and be the people of God. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It doesn't matter what our broader culture is telling us. It doesn't matter what's happening in our government. It matters that you and I know why we are who we are, that the staff that will keep us upright is the perpetuation of our mission in announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, now we'll go into smooth air. One mission, one mission alone that keeps us grounded and on our feet as the people of God. In verse 10, he reminds us, not only are we a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, he reminds us that we are a people who are now the objects of the mercy of God. Verse 11, he goes on, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, there's another description of who we are. He calls us foreigners and exiles or foreigners and sojourners. Uh, Any of you who have lived outside of your home culture in another nation know exactly what he's talking about. As a foreigner and an exile, you are not a part of, fully a part of the culture in which you live. You're always a bit of an outsider. And because you're a bit of an outsider, you live by a different set of values, you live by a different set of code, and sometimes you act differently than the world around you. That's who you and I are in this world. We are foreigners and exiles because we, as the people of God, live by a different understanding of the kingdom, by a different understanding of values, by a different set of beliefs. And so we're going to be different. We are not, first and foremost, citizens of this world. As Paul would say it, our citizenship is in heaven. I think we told you that all of our children were born in Vienna, and then we moved to Poland. We came back to the United States in 1995. Our kids were 11, 9, and 5. And uh, we'd been able to put put back money so that our kids, we could go back to Europe with our kids, back to Poland, so that they could see their friends. So after we'd been in the United States for a year, my son and I went back to Poland where we'd been living. Now, he'd gone through four years of Polish school, and so he spoke Polish fluently. In fact, 
We had to teach him really to speak English, teach him to read English. We spoke English at home. And he was deeply ingrained in that Polish community. So we got back to our place in Poland where we lived and we got off the airplane. His entire class was waiting for him at the airport. 30 kids. I had to take a taxi. (laughs) The families took him and for three weeks I never saw him. They just passed him around from family to family, completely welcoming back into that world where he had become a part of that community. So after our visit, we got back on the airplane, we're flying back up to the capital city, and he's, the, he's now 12 years old. So he says to me, Dad, I have a question. And, and if you've been a parent of a 12-year-old, you know that if there's any hint of a seriousness in the question of a 12-year-old, you should pay attention. So he says, Dad, I have a question. Who am I? Am I a Pole or am I an American? It was a great opportunity, a wonderful question, a heartfelt question, a tear-laced question. And I had the privilege of saying to him, you are a child of God. That's our first identity. Our first identity is not our nation, it's not our state, it's not our community, it's not our race. Our first identity is our confession of faith as the people of God. That's who we are. And in this world, we're always going to be different. And so Peter says to them, as aliens and strangers in this world, abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In other words, live out who you are. Because when you live in ways that are contrary to the God who has created you, it wars against your soul. You know you're not living in the way that God has called you to live. So live in the way that's consistent with your identity as the people of God. And then he goes on to say, keep your conduct among the pagans honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so in this verse, these two verses, the apostle tells us where we are, who we are. We've seen who we are. We've seen why we are who we are. Where we are who we are is among pagans. We are the people of God among people who haven't yet found the one true God. Why on earth would we expect them to act like they have? And because they haven't, they're going to misunderstand us. They're going to accuse us. They're going to call us dumb, stupid, and blind. And as we live among them, we have even a higher calling to live out the virtues and the values that reflect our God that they cannot deny. Compassion, more than indignation. Courage and hope more than fear, joy, more than anger, diligence, more than quitting, hard work, more than laziness. Just go through the list. All of the virtues of the people of God are virtues that our society would welcome. Although they may accuse us of being 
dumb and blind and ignorant and doing the things that aren't what our society should do, though they say those things, when they see our consistent character and the day of the Lord comes, they will glorify him. Now that's a promise, isn't it? We live among people who are blind. And because they're blind, they can't begin to see unless we begin to live in ways that they cannot deny. And so, my dear people, who are we? We are the people of God. A chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, those who have received the mercy of God, aliens and strangers in the world. Why are we the people of God? We are the people of God for one purpose, that is to proclaim and demonstrate and show and announce the virtues of the God who has created us. And where are we the people of God? We are the people of God in this broken and blind world, a world that needs us desperately because they need our Savior. Boy, that's a mission, isn't it? You know, the church is never more the church than when it's engaged in mission. And to be quite frank, when the church isn't engaged in mission, it's not being the church. This time when you have as a church to focus on mission isn't just the only week of the year that you're engaged in mission. I know that you're a people who are committed to mission throughout year, throughout the year. This is the week when you have the opportunity to see the expansive scope of the mission that God is privileging you to be a part of. This is a week to rejoice. This is a week to be reminded. This is a week to be ex excited and motivated and enthusiastic about all that God is doing through you as the people of God. My dear brothers and sisters, I want you to know that your faith, that your commitment to mission, that your commitment to holy living that your commitment to one another, that your commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ inspires me and encourages me. And I pray that our time together has done that for you as well. Let's pray together. Lord, it's a privilege to be called your people. And I pray, our Father, that through your spirit, we would be reminded that we are first and foremost, and always your people. The people of your mission. The people who have been called to live in this place that desperately needs the truth of your son. The people who live between the comings, living with hope in the promise of what is to come. Our Father, we confess that life apart from Jesus has no allure to us. And we confess that life in your mission, being a part of what you're doing, gives us a reason to get up every day. We are your people. We are the people of your mission. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.